When I was growing up, one of my favorite movies was the army comedy Stripes, starring Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, Sean Young, Judge Reinhold, John Candy, and John Larroquette. I watched the movie over and over again, so naturally different parts of the film imprinted on my impressionable young mind. For example, there's a scene when Larroquette's character is admonishing the cadets who got kicked out of a strip club, and in this scene, Judge Reinhold is wearing a shirt that says, Death Before Disco. I don't even think I knew what disco was at the time I saw the movie, which probably says more about how lax our family was in supervising me and our movie collection. I mean, I think by the time Mom tried to explain to me what sex was, I was like, oh yeah, that thing where they got naked in the Terminator. Um, But getting back to disco, I couldn't describe it. I didn't know what it sounded like, but I knew it was something to be avoided. By the time I was a teenager in the 90s, disco was synonymous with the village people, whose hit YMCA I have other reasons for hating, and of course, the Bee Gees. When I was cutting my musical teeth on grunge rock and hip-hop, the disco hits of the Bee Gees were beyond toxic. They were radioactive. Luckily, you can only be an idiot teenager for so long, and I eventually grew to like a ton of disco hits. But even before that, I was an unwitting fan of the Bee Gees by falling in love with songs I didn't even realize were theirs. And that's because a lot of the songs they performed before the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack don't sound anything like that. The Bee Gees' earlier hits are psychedelic pop that sound like Beatles knockoffs or something from the vast area of Woodstock-era hippie bands like the Mamas and the Papas. They've also written a ton of famous hits for other artists. They are, in fact, one of the most prolific and talented songwriting groups in history. Their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997 made note of the fact that only five other recording artists, including the likes of Michael Jackson and Elvis Presley, had sold more records than them. To dismiss the Bee Gees as nothing more than a disco group is to A, undersell the value of great dance music, and B, ignore the simple truth that, whether they're composing for themselves or other singers, the brothers Barry, Robin, and Maurice Gibb make damn, damn fine pop music. And that is what we are here to talk about on this episode of Fire and Water Records. I'm Ryan Daly, and with me as always is my brother, Neil Daly. What is up, man? <laughs> What's going on, man? This is going to be fun. Oh, the brothers talking about the brothers. So, yep. <laughs> um, what is your gateway or your introduction to the Bee Gees, and what were your impressions of them? Certainly coming at them from a different time. Did I mean, I, I put it right up front, I was prejudiced against them for a long time based on ignorance and and other sort of like cultural like feelings towards that genre but what about you what were you thinking when you first discovered them yeah i would probably say i my my reaction my initial reaction as a child was probably similar i think it was very much you know without having any conceptual idea of what disco was or what this group was i think there was just an inherent desire to reject it you know, and it didn't come from our mom and dad, although they were far more into the folk soft rock of the 70s. You know, they were never disco fans by any means, but it, it's it's not like that. You know, and we didn't grow up in a household with disco or anything, but there was something about I just kind of knew like I wanted to reject all things disco because everybody else did. Mm-hmm. So I think that was kind of where it came from. And I didn't have any appreciation for them or for what it was about. Here's the thing. I'm, I'm 
to quote you, epically quote you, you know, I did, I wasn't a fan of them from Jump. But what I, but what I will say, I did know of the movie Saturday Night Fever, which for our listeners, I'm sure that was probably most people's introduction to the Bee Gees. I was I, I, I recognized that that was a movie, but my earliest memories of that movie was it was just, oh, the guy from Greece is in this. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much where it went. And I saw the movie as a kid, but never looked at it like a musical and never listened to the music or took the soundtrack seriously. I mean, as a matter of fact, in that era, I think I took the soundtrack to Xanadu far more serious, even though that was disco too. I think, I think I like that. Cause that was the other girl from Greece. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, so my, to come full circle then to, so what we're talking about is finally at some point in my adult life, I was putting together a wedding soundtrack, a wedding playlist where I wanted the chronology of, of a playlist to go from like the soft rock music or, or the like, you know, like the big band, the, fr- mm-hmm. the crooner stuff, like to play during cocktail hour to just, you know, just dinner music that you could eat to. And then eventually transitioning to, I had this, I had this epic fantasy of the perfect playlist for a wedding. And it always ended with the last hour being disco. Mm-hmm. Number one, because it's danceable and fun, but number two, because everybody knows it. You know, it wasn't like I wasn't going to try and all of a sudden break out today's modern, you know, pop hits by uh, Ariana Grande or something. Some yeah, 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 I wasn't going to go that route. So it always ended with disco. So I started amassing a collection of disco songs. And the one common constant throughout the whole thing was always the Bee Gees. They kept coming up either as songs written for other people or them them themselves. And that was when, and now again, this is in my adult life. All of a sudden I started realizing, you know, at first my reaction to disco was kind of like, this is fun party music, but it was kind of still a joke. It was a little bit more sarcastic. And then, uh, you know, the more I listened to it, the more I was like, wow, these songs are actually good. I mean, because at this point now, I was breaking down music and song structure, playing guitar and singing. So I learned to take, you strip down all the synthesizers and all the strings and take that out of any song. Is the melody good? Are the lyrics good? Is the chord structure, you know, sound and things like that. So I started doing that and started realizing, wow, like you said, these guys are pretty damn good. And then finally, I I think what it came to was I finally revisited the movie Saturday Night Fever as an adult after I'd moved to L.A. and I was already an actor. And once you see it as an adult, that's a really dark, twisted movie. I mean, it is there's there's themes in there. I mean, there's I I mean, I don't want to get into the movie because that's not what this is about. But that movie couldn't be made today. You couldn't have a movie where, you know, a girl takes a bunch of drugs and gets date raped by her best friends in the back of a car. And then, the you know, a friend jumps off the bridge because nobody called him that day. And, and they get in a fight and everything's about gangs and there's homophobic stuff and then there's racism and all. I mean, it's a dark, dark movie. But I appreciated it more as an adult. And... The soundtrack made sense then. I started to look at the placement of the songs, which we'll get into as I discuss my list. But what we'll get into is the placement of the songs served the soundtrack so well. And at that point in my life now, I was, I was, I was, I was a musician. I was an actor. I was doing all these things. So it all kind of came like I realized now these weren't just a collection of songs that were thrown together. These were written for a certain place in the movie kind of thing. You know, I'll, I'll, we'll get into all this stuff. Right, right, right. But, but to, you know, finally, I think it was like all of a sudden I grudgingly kind of came around to the fact that I'm like, God damn, these guys are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've been going through it and I think where I finally gave up 
hating on disco just because I felt like I was expected to was from movie soundtracks. And it felt like a couple hit right around the same time mm-hmm. in the mid to late 90s. It was first uh, Boogie Nights, yep, uh, yep. P.T. Anderson movie, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, and I covered that on the Film and Water podcast with Rob Kelly. And, uh, I loved that soundtrack, and I loved the way the music was used in that movie and that kind of uh, mm-hmm. And then very soon after that movie, I think the movie 54 came out about yep. Studio 54. Yep. Um, and then there was a, a Spike Lee movie, Summer of Sam, um, yeah. which oh, also right, had, right. Like, contrasted the disco with the hard punk rock scene. And you had these two different things. Um, so just kind of like getting the music from that, I was like, you know, I like a lot of these songs. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like, yeah. And then, I mean, just kind of like digging on that and like accepting those. And then uh, years later, eventually, I, I heard your wedding playlist. And, yeah. and that was when I was really, I was like, oh, I, I'm really digging this too. Mm-hmm. So I was wrong to sort of be prejudicial against disco in general. Uh, but for the Bee Gees specific, this is where my memory, I feel like it's betraying me. Because what I sort of remember being my gateway into them, or when I first really got curious about them, was when a song that they wrote but weren't famous for recording themselves, the song Emotion, yep. which was written to be on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, but yes. didn't actually make the movie. Um, but it was written by the, the brothers and performed by Samantha Sang. I hadn't heard their version but I had heard either Beyonce or... I think you know it was Destiny's, Destiny's Child. Child. It was when she yeah. was still with Destiny's Child. They did a cover of it. Yeah. And that was like the first... And when I just kind of heard anecdotally that it was originally like... It was a Bee Gees song. And I'm like, really? I was like, <laughs> right. I, I was like I, I, I'm not like... I wouldn't call myself a Destiny's Child fan, but I'm really digging this song. Should I listen to the original one? And I did, and I loved it. I was like, this is a great song, the original version. You never see me fall apart Sort of think I was like, okay, I'm curious now because I've sort of heard that they were good songwriters. What else have I read? And I went through like a catalog of all of the songs that they had written and either were famous for or wrote for other people, and I was like, holy god, this is yeah. a lot of great songs! Yeah, <laughs> what, what now? This is where I, again I feel like my memory because I feel like that came too late because I that Destiny's Child song would have been in the early mid 2000s. And I thought I was into them or respectful of them earlier than that, but I can't remember exactly what the chronology is. Hmm. But so, so what we're going to do for those of you listening, um, if you join us on this uh, little trip through the Bee Gees, we've both put up a list of five songs that we're going to talk about, and we'll play song clips for them so you can hear them. And then after that, we're actually going to go through some of their other songs that they made hits for other people, because that is just like a very cool little factoid of their career. As uh, you look at all these, an hits important that, part of their career. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, even though I've just kind of gone on this defense of disco, the <laughs> songs that I chose are largely from their period before that. It's more of the psychedelic pop and like their early stuff from the late 60s or very early 70s. I do have one song from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack uh, on my list. 
um, you, the five you picked, were all from that soundtrack. Um, yeah, just about. I mean, some of them may have been written before that, but were then included, and I'll get into each one independently. But yeah, I think I think our our personal tastes in BG's music is going to differ a bit, which will make this a fun conversation. Right. So I'm just going to start off with the song that made me the most surprised to find out that it was written by them, which is "How Can You Mend a Broken Heart." I could never see tomorrow. I was never told about the sorrows. How can you mend the broken hearts? How can you stop the rain from falling down? Stop the sun from shining. What makes the world go round? This was written in 1971. It was released by them. And I mean, it's a great pop love song. Now, I put it on my list for theirs, but I will concede that their version is not the best. <laughs> uh, the Al Green version is, by a wide margin, way superior. The Al Green version is one of my favorite R and B style, like soul songs, sure. like ever. Yeah. It's just, it's his his version is uh, a masterpiece. But their version, if you hadn't heard the Al Green version to compare it to, <laughs> their version is really, really good. Um, it is, yeah, it's it's one of my favorite, possibly my second favorite of their songs. But yeah, I, I wanted to kick off with that one just because that was like the one when I was like looking at a list of their songs, like that one just jumped out right at me. I was like, really? They wrote this one? Yeah, um, yeah. And may, maybe I had heard it, but I didn't associate with them because it's not a disco song. Like again, right. It didn't sound like that. So if I had ever heard the original version before then, I didn't have the context for it. Yeah, it's it's definitely I, I, I agree with you putting this on the on the list. I mean, it's not in my top five, but, you know, the interesting thing about them and we'll we'll talk more about their history as we go into each individual song and everything. But they had they had broken up and gotten back together a couple of times. And one of the times this was kind of like a, a reunion type song for them, even though this was before their disco era. They had broken up prior. And then in 1971, like you said, they got back together and they did a couple songs in this one. If memory serves and you're going to find this with a lot of Bee Gees hits, not only did they write songs for other people that made famous, but they also wrote songs for other people that then rejected them and they ended up doing them themselves. <laughs> this was one that I'd heard. This was written for like Andy Williams or something, you know, mm-hmm. so, something like way back then. And he passed on it. It was just one of those things like their management label, you know, had them writing songs for other people. And I think Andy Williams rejected it. So they recorded it themselves and put it out in 1971. And again, it's, you know, their, their formula is pretty simple. If you strip away all the production and you can separate genres, if you take the disco out of them, and if you take the, the flower child, you know, 1960s stuff out of them and just go to song structure, this has a great chorus. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just got a great melody and chorus. It works. It could, it could be re-recorded and it has been, you know, obviously <laughs> if you said, but a lot of their songs lend themselves to popular covers because the structure stands the test of time. Yeah, that's why I consider them just like a naturally a pop band and pop songwriters because they're so adaptable to disco or to R&B or to sort of country western as as we'll see or something yeah, right. more more along those lines so. 
All right. So, what is your first song on the list? Okay, I'm actually gonna. I'm just gonna kind of randomly count backwards from like five down to one. <laughs> so, the first song I want to talk about is kind of a no-brainer, and it's going to be obvious for everyone. But to keep our listeners invested in the show, <laughs> I'm gonna go with "Staying Alive." Well, you can't stay- So Staying Alive was obviously the main single off Saturday Night Fever. That's the one that everybody knows and everybody recognizes as John Travolta walking. And that's the hit. The funny thing about this song was, I, again, you know, I had to do a little bit of research for this because I was familiar with the Bee Gees, knew all the songs, but I wanted to know a little bit about each one, some stories that I didn't know. So I did kind of look this stuff up. And this is one of the first major hits to ever feature a drum loop. Now, the cool thing about this song was the sample that they used was from another Bee Gees song. (laughs) So this is a really, really interesting story here. Their drummer had left due to a personal tragedy during the recording sessions for Saturday Night Fever. But he had already recorded the song Night Fever because that came out on a previous album and then was re-featured on the album, on the soundtrack. But they took two different four-bar samples from the drums to Night Fever and looped them together for the entire song. So if you listen to Saturday Night Fever and tune out everything else, there's no drum fills, there's no breakdowns, the drum loop is consistent from start to finish, even when the song breaks down and they're doing the high falsetto part, staying alive. Yeah, yeah. The drums keep going <laughs> and they play through <laughs> because they didn't have the technology to do much with it. So the only <laughs> thing that they added was like every once in a while they would add a crash cymbal <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. But apparently the story goes that they it got so popular management of other of other artists were contacting the Bee Gees after this album became such a smash they were contacting them asking them who's the drummer that played on the album and all this stuff and one of the things that their manager had to say is nobody it's 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 a drum loop and that didn't make sense to people but this was this was the introduction to the modern era of the drum loop now aside from all that stuff which is a fantastic story staying alive isn't one of my or it's one of my five favorite bg songs but it's it's number five on my list it's not my favorite but i can't do a bg's podcast without talking about the impact of the song staying alive so we'll leave it at that <laughs> i'm imagining that poor drummer coming back to the band after you know whatever <laughs> funeral or something that he had to have. it's like wait what did you do wait we're, like this song is doing what on the charts wait who wants to know what the drum oh, man. yeah i'm sure he probably was i probably he probably felt that way until the royalty check started coming in yeah <laughs> and he was um, like this is some of my finest work <laughs> You know, I don't want to undercut everything that I've said to try and be taking this podcast seriously, but I have to say that anecdotally, I don't associate this song with Saturday Night Fever anymore. Really? It's sort of been ruined for me. Okay. I associate this song with the movie Airplane. (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you remember the scene? Oh, the flashback? I know exactly what you're when, talking when about. Ted Stryker. Oh uh, my god! Friend. Yeah, they recreated the whole like the white suit, black yeah, shirt, everything. Yeah, yeah. He's in he's in the naval. He's in his like the white uniform, and he yeah. rips the jacket off. And he's got a black shirt underneath, and he does the whole thing. So, oh man, that when is I hear funny. the song, I think of that scene and like the fighting of like the Koreans like around them, and yeah. the Girl Scouts who start fighting each other during the yep. middle of the song. Like when I close my eyes and listen to the song, I hear the Girl Scouts like grunting and fighting each other as part of the soundtrack. Dude. Oh my god, you know what? Now that you mention that, all I picture is the guy with the knife in his back trying <laughs> yeah. to get her to take it out, and she starts dancing with him. Yeah, no, that's funny that you mentioned that, and I should point out the fact that a common misconception about people is that when everybody associates the dance, John Travolta, the white suit, the disco thing, mm-hmm. blah, 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 they always assume that this is the song that he danced to, and ironically, it's not. I'll, I'll get to that as we go forward, but that's that's that. Wow, that's a. I hadn't even made that connection until now, and now that's now it's ruined for me too. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, and and actually, that that brings up something else that I could mention <laughs> is that for as much as I thought I knew to stay away from like this soundtrack and these songs and like the BGs and everything, like when I was a kid, I knew all of these songs from other sources. They <laughs> were still really popular, and a lot of them were from other movies, whether yeah. they had been parodied or oh or something like that. Like, I feel like none of these songs were a surprise when I discovered them later on. It's like, I, I knew I wasn't supposed to like these songs, but I knew them really, really well because I'd heard them. So, Yeah, this is this is why I, I'm, I'm assuming right now, at this point in the show, all of our listeners are probably, they're going to listen to every song we pick, and when you play the song samples, they're going to recognize them all, whether they know <laughs> the names or not. This is The Bee Gees are like one of those weird, guilty pleasure bands. Yep. And I should point out, one of my many, many guitars... Remember in the 90s, we vandalized all our guitars. We wanted to make them all look like Green Day punk rock. That's what we did. I remember yeah. you vandalized my guitar. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I had a lot of say in it. No, well, you, there's very few things you had a lot of say in. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, I made it better. That's That was my thing. You know, just like with all our Star Wars toys that I set on fire, fire makes it good. So, but anyway, what was, was, I do have a guitar with a sticker that says R.I.P. Gib. <laughs> oh, God. All right, and that brings us me to my number two from 1970, the song "Lonely Days." There is a story, it might be apocryphal, but I found it when I was researching the song, uh, that supposedly they had been recording this song, and it came on the radio one day, and the Bee Gees manager heard this song on the radio and told the, and like turned to like somebody that he was with and said, this is my favorite Beatles song. Yes, yes. Yeah. I tend to give credence to that because I'm sure the first time I heard the song, I thought it was a Beatles song. Mm-hmm. I was like, this doesn't sound like they're not doing like their falsettos or anything that they're known for. Like, I was like, this sounds like, you know, the Beatles or the Turtles or somebody else from this <laughs> era. Like, it just, it, it doesn't sound like that, like that. So it's just, it's just a really different kind of song. And I, and I, I dig it and I like it. And I, it made my list just because it was like, this was one of those where like, I was like, 
I've heard this song. This isn't a BG song, is it? Like, right. they, okay, this is a song they wrote, but somebody else performed. No, this is them. It's just yeah, the surprise factor just wowed me on this one. Yeah, I'm gonna actually one up you on that story too because there was an intentional part on their early management was Rob Stigwood and Rob Stigwood. I don't know how many people even know he was he was from Australia, but he produced the Saturday Night Fever movie and produced Grease and and did, so he kept like having that, having them come back and do mm-hmm. the music. He was like their manager producer for a long time, but one of the things he did and oh god i want this this had to be in the 60s still i don't even think it was it was long before like because this these two songs how can you men a broken heart and lonely days both came out on the same album in 71 so but this is going back to the 60s to get uh, like in 67 stigwood was notorious for sending out the bg's singles to radio stations without the name of the band on it just a blank white label Yep. And radio stations assumed it was the next single from the Beatles' White Album. Yeah. So so they got major play, and people kept saying everybody thought they were the Beatles, and he capitalized on that. He he milked that for as much as he could. He was notorious for saying like, okay, yeah, that's the Beatles, sure. And, and I think that got back to the Beatles because I don't think they were very happy with it. Oh, of course. If you, find, <laughs> if you find some quotes from like you know Ringo and and Paul and George like at, at that time, yeah. they were like. Yeah, we've we've heard the BGs. We yeah, we know. Yeah, they were kind of giving them the stink eye. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. But it was one of those things where you know he found the loophole because he didn't misrepresent them. He, he let people draw their own conclusions, and everybody assumed they were the Beatles. So he just laughed all the way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> all right, what is your number two? Okay, next I'm going to go with uh, Jive Talking. So Jive Talking, this is interesting. This is probably the least disco on my list. And this was, a, I mean, this came out earlier. Uh, it was added, of course, like a lot of their songs, they got added as an afterthought to the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. But this came out off their album Main Course in 1975. And this was honestly more of a funk R&B song. And I believe this might have been one of the first, and again, you know, as cutting edge as they were, which we've talked about, you know, a couple of times how they, you know, the last song I referenced was the first drum loop ever. This was one of the first songs to use a synth bass. So if you go back and listen to the bass line, this was a new concept. They did something completely different. So this is a very funk heavy R&B kind of song, like George Parliament, if a little bit. This, you know, it wasn't really disco, but then when it fits easily in on Saturday Night Fever 2. Now, the funny story about this one is the Bee Gees being white bread Australian boys, when they came up with the concept of jive talking, they thought it meant dancing. They thought jive talking was dancing with your feet. And it was only brought up to them later when they were recording that somebody said, uh, no, jive, jive talking is black slang for bullshit and somebody. And they were like, oh. 
And so they went back and changed the lyrics at the last minute to like, there's a, in the chorus, you're telling me lies. Like they added those, they re- they reframed the song so that they didn't sound like idiots. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was just kind of a funny story. Now here's one for you, Ryan, that you'll love. And this, even if, if, you know, in a perfect world, our dad would actually listen to this podcast, but we know he probably won't, but Lindsay Buckingham, a Fleetwood Mac loved this song so much in the intro that, you know, the guitar part that he wrote secondhand news off the rumors album based on this song and Barry Gibbs guitar part. So now if you ever compare them both side by side, listen to Jive talking and then listen to secondhand news, which is an awesome song. I love, Uh love that. So rumors album is fantastic, but he, uh, yeah, Lindsay Buckingham freely admits I stole it. (laughs) I loved it. He's not even trying to hide it. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and I will say, like, I didn't bring this to my list because I knew you had it. Right. But this is, this would be in my top five. This this one might be, like, my number three or number four favorite BG song. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned that it's the least disco of all the ones that you <laughs> right, bring up. Right. That's why um, it's on your list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why it would have been on my list. But um, but I, I swapped it out for uh, for a disco one that I had more to say about. But, yeah, yeah. no, I, I love this song. I think it's great. Yeah, I do too. And as a matter of fact, if, you know, if in, in, in an alternate universe, you know, if they ever like swapped the title and didn't call it Jive Talking, I don't know if people would associate it with disco. But because of its play, it's so associated with Saturday Night Fever and the name Jive Talking, it just, you know, it just became a disco thing. Okay, for number three, for me, the disco hit that I did want to talk about, You Should Be Dancing. I had to talk about because this song, like more than any of their other dance songs, this one has a kind of physiological effect on me when I hear it. The song feels like too sped up, like at times, like mm. like especially the part where they get to the chorus. Like there's a line in the song that I have never understood what they're actually saying <laughs> until just before this podcast. I had to look it up, and it's when they say, "What you doing on your back." <laughs> I could ne- that was like gar- yeah. garbled to me when they see it. It's just we don't need. I was like, what? We don't need. I was like, what? What was that line? And man, and- I forgot how good your falsetto is. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's it's gonna sound weird, but like this song, like when I listen to this, I feel like. Okay, I've just done a lot of coke and I'm out of control. Like the like things are spinning around me. Like I if I listen to the song in the car, I feel like I should pull over. And I can't understand why this of all songs is having this effect on me, but it's just it feels like it's 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 too fast. I'm getting anxious just thinking about it. I don't know. It's visceral. It's, yes, yes. So it's like what are you doing here, I was like, Stop, stop, slow down, say that again. Say that so What are you doing here, back? Oh my god! Oh my god! You're creating all kinds of new sense memories in me now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna freak out every time I hear it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, this song. Well, yeah. well, here's the thing with this song for me. First of all, and again, you know, speaking of misconceptions about the people that aren't really familiar with the movie Saturday Night Fever, this is the song that really broke out John Travolta as a as a dancer when he clears the room and does his solo stuff. And this is it's early on in the film, but he just you know he just basically like just tell like even one of his buddies, I think it's Double J in the movie, is like here he goes, and it's just that kind of thing. Now the irony that or I should I shouldn't even say the irony, but the connection that I have to that is before I ever really paid attention to Saturday Night Fever, and you'll remember this, you know, stories about when I was at NIU playing football and I hung out with Rakim and Michael T and Vaughn. And the four of us together would go to the the house parties or the fraternity parties or, or the clubs in, at NIU, and we would do that. Like this was a thing in the early '90s where we would separate the room and we would dance and we all choreographed our steps. I know it sounds really cheesy now and embarrassing, <laughs> but at the time, it was like and and I stood out like a sore thumb because I was the white kid that could do it. So <laughs> I was the one in the group. So we literally would clear a circle everywhere we went to the point where we started going to parties and stuff and Rakim and I, people would see us come in and then they'd just be waiting. Like there'd be wallflowers just waiting for us to see like, okay, let's see you do your stuff. And we could go in. We started getting kicked out of frat parties because we would bring a lot of chicks there. But every time we did our steps and would dance for five minutes and everything, we could leave with anybody we wanted. And then dudes started being like, we don't want you guys here now. <laughs> like, this is our house party. That's not cool. So that was the thing. But so, uh, to come full circle, one of the reasons I mentioned that was because somebody at one point had brought it up to us and been like, you guys are like Saturn and Fever in the place. And I remember looking at them be, like they were speaking a foreign language. I'm like, I don't know what the hell that means. Mm-hmm. You know, now when I look back, I'm like, that's exactly what John Travolta did. Now, the last thing I want to say about this song, which is, and this goes carrying forward to a lot of the songs, I'm not sure how many people are familiar. The soundtrack, the movie was entirely shot complete before they added the soundtrack. So one of the things, John Travolta was dancing to a completely different song in every scene. So one of the things that the Bee Gees had to do was not only write this song and add it to the soundtrack, but they had to tempo it so that it matched. (laughs) So there was all kinds of stuff about how they were fighting over how fast to make it or how slow. And, you know, once they were done with the recording, then they had to speed it up a couple notches, RPMs and stuff. This was really kind of funny that I'm curious to know, like, this would be a fun project to research to find out what the hell song is John Travolta actually danced to because these weren't done when they were recording when they filmed it god you know what I could have paid 125 or 150 dollars and met him at Boston Fan Expo last weekend and I could have asked him that question oh my god <laughs> damn it why didn't we do this a week ago I know really <laughs> all right well what is your number three song then all right so number three now we're getting now we're getting to my top three so my number three song is night fever Now, 
Now, Night Fever is one of those really interesting songs. Obviously, the next three songs I'm going to do are kind of all interchangeable, but they're, they, you know, you could flip-flop either one of them in the top spots. But this song was great because this is one of the only ones that was just written right before the soundtrack. They had already written this song called Night Fever, and Robert Stigwood, who was producing it, came to them and said, hey, I need some music for a movie I'm doing. Um, the movie's called Saturday Night. And he needed some disco songs. And the BG said, well, we've got a couple. Like, we're going that direction and everything. Um, and so they submitted the song called Night Fever. And Stigwood loved the title so much that he changed the name of the movie to Saturday Night Fever. It was originally just called Saturday Night. And he changed it based on this song. Now, here's a here's a deep dive for all you uh, um, listeners out there. Here's another comparison I'm going to draw. So Barry Gibb has said that the string arrangement in the intro and throughout the song for Night Fever was based on and inspired by the string arrangement from Percy Faith's 1960 instrumental theme from a summer place, which most people will recognize as the love theme, the, the, the string instrumental from animal house and a couple other movies. I think it was even in Batman, you know, there was like, yeah, at the Flugheim when she's, yeah. at, when she's yes. waiting for, for Bruce, even though it's the Joker who set up the date. Exactly. Exactly. So people are going to recognize that it's a very, it's a very, it, it's an, it's a memorable song. Now, if you listen to that song, the you know, that whole thing, and then listen to the first 10 seconds of Night Fever, you hear it. It's yeah. it's it's right there. He, it's it's almost lifted perfectly. So yeah, I just love it. But aside from that, this is like now we're getting into that disco era of BGs that I just I just love. This song is this song is just great. Yeah, yeah, and I don't have anything really to add to that other than yeah, I, I like it for the same reasons. I hadn't made that connection to the, the theme from the Summer Place, but now, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure well, I would, I wouldn't have known it had not had I not looked it up. So that yeah. was one of those. That's one of those that I just kind of stole some information. But it's fascinating, and now, now I can't separate the two. It's I, I hear it every time. <laughs> yeah, when I'm pl- when I'm plugging the songs in for the for the final cut of this, I'm I'm gonna hear it. Nice. All right, number four for me. Uh, this is one of their earlier hits from 1967. The song Massachusetts. I'm going back to Massachusetts. Something's telling me I must go home. I don't have a whole lot to say about this song other than I just, I, I really like it. Uh, this is another one where I'm sure I heard the song before I knew who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure I probably heard this song at some point just growing up or like it was on, you know, a, a tape or, or something that dad was playing or something or just like heard it uh, somewhere through some context. And I assumed it was like a Tommy James song or something mm-hmm. like that yeah. or, or one of those other groups. Um, and uh, it's funny, kind of. I, I did kind of like look it up, and the song was written sort of in response to the whole sort of psychedelic scene that was moving out to San Francisco. Right. And Robin Gibb kind of like mentioned that, like, yeah, I, I, they hadn't even, they'd never been to Massachusetts. Yeah, <laughs> right, like I they, heard that they, too. 
they didn't even hear, hear about it. But it was just like he was kind of so preoccupied with this movement towards the western coast that he's like, what happens when somebody gets there and they sort of a little bit disillusioned and or, or a little bit homesick? So he wrote a song about the opposite coast. So, it, so that's the whole song. It's like wanting to get back to Massachusetts, and the, light yeah. went, the lights went out in Massachusetts when he when he left. Yeah, there. I think. I, yeah, like you said, I have. I don't really have anything else to add except for that I've heard the same stories, and I think I even heard you know something like you know Robin said he just liked the word Massachusetts. Yeah. He thought that he was like, oh, I got to write a song. And by the way, I should point this out. There's a lot of stories about them in the studio where they would write down titles before they would ever write a song. Mm-hmm. There's this was kind of commonplace for them. Like they would write words down in titles and then build a song around a title they liked. So it's, it doesn't surprise me at all that they were like, they liked the word Massachusetts. Hey, let's write a song about it. We've never been there. Okay. And the way it is incorporated, it's a very simple song in, in combination. Yeah. And like, again, it's one of those things where it's, it's very bare bones structure. The lyrics aren't anything special, yeah, um, yeah. but it's just like, the melody, the hook, the harmony of the the way they're they're getting it. I, I yeah, I dig the song. It's it's just a it's a song I can play in the background, and it's it's I dig it. So yeah, yeah and it shows you in, in a weird way. And I, this is I'm, this may be a stretch for for people, but in a weird way, the evolution of their sound over the years and the way they've adapted to so many current trends and everything reminds me a little bit of like Spinal Tap. You know, <laughs> yeah. like you had the Spinal Tap; they had the Flower Child era, where you know, and, and then all of a sudden they're doing Big Bottom, and so you know, it's like one of those weird things where this song, like, if all you think of the Bee Gees are a disco band, you're way wrong. Well, again, I think that just goes to one of the things that we were saying in the beginning is like they just they naturally write pop songs. Yeah. yeah. And just this is the era that they were in. They started in the mid late 60s and this was like the era that they fell into and they were writing songs for that scene. And it just kind of like they were they were probably just riding these trends for a lot until they became stronger in their musicianship. And by the time they got to the disco era, they weren't just riding the trends. They were cutting it. They were defining the trends. And they they wrote it so hard that they kind of became, as I said, they were sort of synonymous. They were defined by it so that when that scene ended, it probably took them with it. <laughs> oh yeah, they they definitely they definitely suffered the backwash of of mm-hmm. being a part of the disco, be defining the disco era so much. Which it doesn't surprise me then that they continued to work, but were writing songs for other people yeah. so much because I think their name for a while was taboo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what's your next one? Okay, my next one is one of my two favorite scenes from the movie Saturday Night Fever, and this one soundtrack wise, I'll, I'll describe the scene in a moment, but it is. How deep is your love? You come to me on a summer breeze, keep me warm in your love, then you softly leave, and it's me you need to share. How deep is your love? How deep is your love? How deep is your love? I need it means to learn. Cause we're living in a world of blues, breaking us down. When they all should let us be, we belong to you and me. I believe in you. 
for how deep is your love? First of all, this was one of the, you know, this was probably, and again, this is early on in their disco thing. This was, you know, they became, they did a lot more disco after this came out, but this kind of established Barry as the primary vocalist. I think a lot of what they did prior to that was they all took turns songwriting. There was no lead singer. They were like one of those bands like the Eagles and stuff that, you know, everybody sang a song they wrote kind of thing. But this one kind of firmly established Barry as the primary vocalist. And the reason I like this song so much is because I can't separate the song now from the scene in the movie, which is the, like the montage. This is this is at the point for those of you that haven't seen the movie, which I, I find it hard to believe. But this is like at the end. It's like the crescendo. Everything in Tony's like Tony Monero's John Travolta. Everything in his life has absolutely gone wrong. They got in the big fight before the club scene, but before the dance where they got all beat up and everything. This is his white suit night for all those people that need a visual reference. Uh, Tony and Stephanie win the dance contest, but he doesn't feel he feels like the Puerto Ricans were cheated and blah, blah, blah. So he gives the trophy away because he doesn't feel like he earned it. Annette gets date raped in the back of the car after doing drugs, saying that she wanted to have sex with everybody. And this is their best friend. Bobby dies in the bridge accident. Tony's hung over. Uh, and, and then he and then he tries to kiss Stephanie and then she breaks up with him because she didn't want to be his girlfriend. So the scene takes place as John, uh, John Travolta is riding the subway all night or from night till morning as the sun comes up and it's just a visual montage of everything that's gone wrong in his life and the song fits so perfectly it's beautiful it's amazing and it reminds it's like this guy has hit rock bottom and the song leads him back to stephanie's door and it's first thing in the morning he knocks on her door he apologizes and she says she just wants to be friends and he's like okay i can do that and then that's kind of where that's kind of where the movie ends so it's i think you know i don't know if my love for this song is more because of the association with an in a phenomenal scene in the movie but you know, either way, this is this is number two on my list. And I mean, I would say I heard the song before I saw the movie, so I didn't have that association. Mm, mm-hmm. But I would say this was probably the first song from the soundtrack that I knew I did like that I would like sort of like be an be an apologist for. Like even like sure. <laughs> when it, when it was taboo, I was like, eh, "This is a good love song. This is a good kind of like yeah, I yeah." So I've I've always really liked this song too. This would be this would be higher on my list too. Yeah. Just well, I, that makes sense for you because this really because it's just a ballad. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, this doesn't have to be considered a disco song. As a matter of fact, it's 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 really not. I mean, it's just it's almost like a. I mean, you could enter, you, this could be like a soft Barry Manilow track or something. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's yeah. it's just a it's just a soft loving ballad. But again, their harmonies shine like their their three part harmonies are ridiculous. And it, yeah, I mean this. So yeah, that makes sense. I mean, this you don't have to be. You could hate disco and still love the song, right? All right, so we're going to get to our uh, our number ones, our final. But uh, before we even go to that one, I did want to give shout-outs to two other songs. One is the song I Started a Joke, um, <laughs> which I, I, I think I, I discovered it right before the movie Suicide Squad, and then that ruined it for me because um, it, it was used in that, that movie. Um, the other song was the song You Win Again. Uh-huh. Which was maybe their last hit, like their big hit as a trio, like before right. Maurice died. Right. Yeah. What was that 1987 or something? So, I wanna... Yeah. Yeah. It was right in the middle of the 80s. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing that at the time, like sort of a contemporary. 
this is just what it's one of those weird like memory trick things like i would have sworn that the version i heard the first time was like a cover or something like that because when i went mm. back and listened to the song i was like yeah i recognize this melody but this doesn't sound right i think somebody else covered this or somebody else sang it and i haven't been able to find like another version that sounds like the way it was in my memory so i can't mm. make sense of this like in in my memory, the song sounded noticeably different. It still had the same like chorus, the same like hook, and and everything, but it was just tonally it, it was different. But uh, yeah, so anyway, it, it's it's cool. It's a good song, but it's not as good as my favorite BG song by far. It is the song "To Love Somebody." Again, from 1967, this is a pretty famous song because it has been covered by yes. so many people. Yep. Just to name a few, Rod Stewart, Janis Joplin, Michael Bolton, our beloved Billy Corgan from the Smashing <laughs> right. Pumpkins, yes. uh, The Animals. I would say the very best cover version is by Nina Simone. Mm. But... I like their version better. I, I think their version is the best version. And Barry Gibb was asked which of their songs like he would want to be remembered for, like of all of them in their catalog. And he said this one. If he was associated with one song for the rest of his life, it's this one. There's just something about the purity of the language and the music and just like the meaning of the song. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and I totally dig that because, yeah, this is by far my favorite PG song. I, just, I love this one. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the covers that you neglected, well, it wasn't actually a recorded cover, but the Bee Gees had a tribute to the Bee Gees live show, uh, I think, in Australia within, I want to say, within the last couple of years. I mean, if memory serves, I think Barry Gibb was the only one there. So, uh, But Keith Urban did this song. Oh, really? Yeah, did the song live and dedicated it to him because... I think, uh, and again, Australian to Australian kind of thing. But I think uh, Barry Gibbett said, this is the one he wants to be remembered for. So Keith Urban asked if I can do that. And he did it. And this song, uh, this song was actually written as an R&B ballad for Otis Redding, of all yes. people. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's it, it, and again, we've said it a, a dozen times already, but you can take all the production and the genre out of the song, and what you've got are the bare bones of just a great, great song. Okay, what's your number five? Okay, number five. I'm going to go with, uh, again, keeping it real with Saturday Night Fever is More Than a Woman.
Now, again, I referenced this earlier um, about the misconceptions of the movie. Everybody kind of associates uh, Saturday Night, or uh, I'm sorry, Staying Alive with the movie and John Travolta's dance sequences and stuff. And we've already disproved that with, you know, You Should Be Dancing was his big solo act. More Than a Woman is the song that they actually won the dance contest to. This is the song with John Travolta's white suit, black shirt, Band-Aid on his eye, and dancing with Stephanie that they win the dance contest to. So this is this is just a gorgeous, gorgeous song. Lyrically, it's it's beautiful. I mean, if you read this as poetry, mm-hmm. um, it, it's awesome. As a matter of fact, I've covered this song in an acoustic set once. I've, I've, well, I've done a couple of BG songs, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, but this song I actually did as a cover song once. And it just, this again goes back to this song was written after the BGs had seen a cut of the movie with John Travolta dancing to something else, which God knows what it was. And they wrote the song and then had to time it and tempo it perfectly with the scene in the movie. And this will probably always be one of my favorite BG songs of all time. I mean, I think the word is, is just beautiful. I mean, yeah. melodically, harmonically, like the, their voices and, and like the, the tempo. Like, God, what, I, I didn't know that they recorded the soundtrack to fit the actual scenes of the movie that was already shot and cut and everything. Like, that is phenomenal. That is yeah. incredible. For, um, because of, for already being a great songwriter, then to have to... If, like you know, fit all of the puzzle pieces into that, so that like the timing and everything is right. Yep. That's, that's oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah, it's it's but. yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. But you know, as a songwriter, I think one of the things that leaps out at me, aside from the fact that the lyric is beautiful poetry and everything, mm-hmm. but just the melody. I mean, the song starts with a drum track, you know, so you start thinking, you know, so you feel like okay, we're going up tempo, it's going to be a dance thing, yeah, and then all yeah. of a sudden. All of a sudden, it kind of downshifts. The strings come in, and the vocal melody for the verse—not even the chorus. I'm talking about the verse. The girl I've known you very well, you know. And it's I, there's something. It's it's so freaking catchy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Were there any other thoughts that you had, or any other songs that you want to give shout-outs to? You know what? Actually, I do. And the one thing, it didn't quite make my list, but this would probably be like an honorable mention if, <laughs> if, if, I, if, I, if I dared. I would say um, what most people aren't familiar with the title of the song, but it's, it's Nights on Broadway. <laughs> which was the, which was the yeah it was the second single from Main Course after Jive Talking came out, but what most people will recognize this song from was the SNL skit with Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake. They kind of reworked the song into the the Barry Gibb talk show, <laughs> and that was and that I, I mean honestly I I, I got to admit this song. I didn't really pay much attention to it until I saw the Barry Gibb talk show and that recurring bit that they would keep coming back and doing. And then it made me appreciate the song. And now when I listen to the song visually, all I see are Timberlake and Fallon. (laughs) I can't separate the two. (laughs) Any, any final thoughts about the, the songs that we've mentioned already for the ones that the Bee Gees were known for? Uh, the one, no, I think we pretty much touched on it all. I think, again, you started the podcast with talking about how kind of, I guess you would say the word is underrated they are. You know, yeah. I mean, like you said, you know, they've sold like 220 million albums or something like that. Like, there's only five artists ahead of them. Uh, you know, you mentioned it. I think it's like Garth Brooks is about, you know, yeah, but, Gar- but like, Garth Brooks, the Beatles, Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, Elvis. one other artist. But yeah, like as of whenever they were inducted in like the, in the 90s, that was, whew, that was pretty impressive 
impressive company. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think you, uh, Paul McCartney as a solo artist was the okay. Yeah, sure. So you like when you take all that stuff into account, you know, it's 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 kind of unfortunate that you know they really kind of get overrated, you know, or underrated. You know, I think they're they're overlooked a lot because people's reaction to disco is so is is so rejecting in nature. Ironically, what nobody knows or talks about was Stigwood also managed Eric Clapton and Cream at the same time. And in 1967 or something like maybe maybe 70, some, somewhere right around there, the move to disco, the move to change genres was suggested by Eric Clapton. <laughs> Guitar hero Eric Clapton told Barry Gibb, the reason you're not selling records is because you got to do something different. And that, take it to the bank. <laughs> And yet Eric Clapton didn't go that direction. No, he was he probably did as a joke. He was like, yeah, yeah. as a goof. <laughs> yeah. He was just setting them up for a fall. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, but I thought I thought that was just when I heard that story, I'm like, what the hell does Eric Clapton know about disco? Alright. Um then uh the the final little section of, of songs that I just want to kind of go through kind of quickly and we can talk about these as they come. Uh, because we mentioned this is one of the things that like even before I was really listening and appreciating these songs, I just knew that they had written so many songs for other people that were like big hits and they've written a ton more. Yeah. Um, but probably the among the most famous hits we I've already mentioned Emotion by Samantha Sang, right. uh, which the Bee Gees have recorded a version themselves. But uh that Samantha Sang was the famous version and then that was covered by Destiny's Child. Yep. Um one that I want to come back to and talk a lot about is the song Islands in the Stream by Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers. They also, they wrote, and you kind of mentioned this before, Grease, the, the title <laughs> track for the movie by, performed by Frankie Valli. Yep. Um, the Barbara Streisand hit Woman in Love. In fact, I think if I read this correctly, Barry Gibb wrote the entire album. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, her, her big hit from that was Woman in Love. Um, yep. The song Heartbreaker by Deanne Warwick. Chain Reaction by Diana Ross. And then another song that they wrote, but they weren't the lead performers on it from Saturday Night Fever, If I Can't Have You by Yvonne Elman. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about that was that was that was one of those songs that they had written. Apparently, according to like Barry Gibb, Stigwood was asking for songs, but he expected or he anticipated the soundtrack being um, uh, like, th- let them write it, but have a different artist on every song. He wanted it to be a very all encompassing kind of soundtrack. He didn't want it to just be a Bee Gees album. Mm-hmm. So they had written a bunch of stuff. And I think uh, for, uh, what I heard was they gave How Deep Is Your Love to Yvonne Elliman and expected her to sing it. And she heard what they'd been working on, and she said, if I can't have you... She's like, is anybody singing that song? And they were like, no, not yet. And she was like, can I have that? And they're like, sure. <laughs> so, so she did that. Now, that song, you know, that's one of those... That's that's probably one of the biggest Bee Gees written hits of all time. I mean, that song is that song's all over the place, and everybody knows it and recognizes it. But that wasn't even written for her. That was just one that, you know, they had just written a ton of songs for the soundtrack. And she said, I like that one. And they said, okay, it's yours. If I turn- Uh, to Islands in the Stream. 
I, I, I heard it a long time ago, and I've heard it a lot more recently. I don't know if there's just some resurgence, or as I'm just growing up, my musical taste changed. I'm liking, but like this is one of like the best pop or duet pop songs ever. Yeah. Um, and apparently this was originally written for Marvin Gaye. Yes. Yeah, I heard um, that. As a matter of fact, I think I think the only reason he didn't do it was because he died before he could record it. Oh, God, yeah. Maybe, oh, yeah, the timing, I think. Would... I think so. Don't quote me on that. But I'm pretty sure that's it's something similar to that because I know it was given to Marvin Gaye. Yeah. I, I want to get into the actual the, the song version, but this song crept up on me because before I really liked this song – I had heard when I was growing up the song Ghetto Superstar <laughs> by Praz, Old Dirty Bastard, and Maya. And the rap part of the song, I thought it was fine. It was from the movie Bullworth. I thought the rap part of the song by ODB and Praz was fine. But the chorus sung by Maya yeah. hooked me, and I fell in love with that. Like, I thought I, thought, I yep. loved the sound of her voice. I thought she was hot. And just like like just that the middle part where she was singing that I was like this is such a great little chorus or whatever, and it was a long time. But when it finally dawned on me when I heard the two songs side by side, I was like, oh my god, yes, it's totally this. And like I then I, when I actually looked up and like uh, Robin and Barry Gibb are given partial songwriting credit for Ghetto Superstar. <laughs> like there's like five, there's awesome. like six names written uh, or given songwriting credit, on it, and two of them are the Bee Gees because nice. they so closely took that chorus. Yeah. Oh yeah. They just basically they just reworded it, but they yeah, they yeah. lifted it. Catchy's hell song, and I, but it, like that that hook in the center of it. I was like, That's funny because I always thought you modeled your rap technique after Old Dirty Bastard, so this makes sense that this would be on your list. Not just my rap. Yeah, no, I, I, I really, I, I genuinely love uh, the islands in the stream, the, the actual song, and that Dolly Parton is an artist that I haven't heard a lot of because, and I'm gonna, I'll admit to being ashamed of this as much as I'm ashamed of anything from my youth. Like I, I never gave her the proper respect that she deserved because when I was growing up, she was a boob joke. Yeah, like that's sure. that's all I was like. When like I, I I have a distinct memory of a Saturday Night Live skit when Kevin Nealon was doing Weekend Update when he was talking about like National like Wildlife or Department of Interior <laughs> or something or whatever. Somebody was going to rename the Grand Tetons Mountains the Grand Partons. <laughs> um, like I just I remember. and I was like, yeah, that that's who she was. She the the singer with the big breasts. Yeah, and and for that, like I never looked into it. and. 
there's some where did this come from? Like I, of all people, the the actor French Stewart, who was on like that Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I heard him talking about saying something like, for whatever show, like he was in like a, a trailer with Charo. Do you remember Charo? Yeah. Oh yeah. And she pulled out like a Spanish guitar or a mandolin or something and played, and he was like, "This is like the best guitar playing I have ever heard." And he's like, Dolly Parton is one of the greatest musicians, like like that her genre has ever heard, and nobody gives these women credit because of their bodies. Like, do you think when Bob Dylan or Tom Petty is promoting a song or something, and they have to go on like, uh, you know, David Letterman or something, do you think they get asked questions about their dick? It's like, no, of course not. But like, we subject these. Yeah, women not to Dylan. Some- Definitely yeah, not <laughs> so, so, like that—that that was one. And like listening to um, uh, "I Will Always Love You," like the song made famous by uh, from the Whitney. Bodyguard um, yeah. by Whitney Houston. I've listened to Dolly Parton's version of it. I love it. It's such a yeah. beautiful song. So she is an artist that like I kind of feel like I want to revisit and do like a deeper dive. Now, I I'm not the biggest fan of the genre, so that might be what's keeping me at an arm's distance. But like I want to like I, I just I, I feel compelled to sort of apologize for, for like no, never giving yeah, her the proper I, credit. But, I would actually agree with you, and even to carry to carry it forward, I would even say that you know my my childhood. Ver- vision of uh, Kenny Rogers was much, you know, not based on body, sh- you know, body <laughs> shoes, but, but it was kind of a joke because I first heard the song "The Gambler" on a Chipmunks album oh, or something, yeah. <laughs> and that was that was kind of it. So it was like, you know, I was when I knew of these two people, but I never, I wouldn't have given them the time of day and didn't take them seriously until you know, in my adult life, you look at some of their bodies of work and their fan bases and stuff, and you're like, wow, you know, I mean. Everybody else is doing it, you know, so everybody else recognizes something, so maybe I'm the one that's wrong. And I never say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have anything final to say about the Grease song? The, uh... Uh, no, just, you know, from from what I gather, you know, because this, this came right after Saturday Night Fever's success and everything, and Stigwood had them write the song to it, but Barry actually said he can't sing the entire song in the falsetto that he wanted. And because... It, Stigwood wanted it to sound like a doo-wop group, like a, a 1950s style. And he said that Barry's got falsetto, but it just doesn't come across as, you know, he wanted it to sound like the like the 50s boy band kind of thing. So that's that's pretty much all I know about that one. So they got somebody from, the, from that actual genre. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, hey, let's get a 50s <laughs> boy band guy to do it. So, yeah. yeah. What, I, what, I would add, what I would add to the list, which you, you forgot to mention, but um, – People forget the three brothers had a younger brother named Andy, and Andy Gibb was a pop sensation. He was younger. He, he was kind of like the Mark Wahlberg to the new kids on the block thing. He was like too young to join the group, mm-hmm. and then they just kind of carried on without him. But Barry Gibb was still writing all of his stuff and let him get popular on his own. So um, Andy Gibb had a couple of hits, didn't last long, and then tragically died as he as a youth. You know, uh, unfortunately, you know the Gibb name. <laughs> boy, that's a that's a tough <laughs> that's a tough family to be into, but. Um, um, one of my favorite BG's written songs was Andy's, written by Barry Gibb, but it was called "I Just Want to Be Your Everything." Oh God, I can't believe we forgot that. 
Yeah, and this this I've covered this song on more than one occasion. As a matter of fact, it's got a great hook. It's a falsetto chorus. It's I mean, it's just it's so Bee Gees. It's just so Bee Gees. Right, right, right. And it came out right about the same time as Saturday Night Fever. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody said this was an outtake that didn't make the album, and then they gave it to Andy. You know, that wouldn't surprise me at all. But if you play a sound sample of this song, this song's fantastic. I love this song. I do too. I completely forgot about. Oh gosh, because like when. I was just doing like basic searches for Bee Gees, and I didn't even think about. You're right. Oh man, I know. I love this song too, and I completely forgot. Otherwise, I might have tried to sneak it on the list, or, or at least <laughs> include it. So yeah, I'm glad you remembered. Yeah. But that's it. That you know, everything else you kind of touched on. I do know that, ironically, and this is kind of strange. God knows why, but I've heard stories that both Dion Warwick, who he wrote Heartbreak, Barry Gibb wrote Heartbreaker for, and Barbara Streisand, who you mentioned, Woman in Love. I've heard that both of them didn't like the song. They don't speak highly of the songs, yet these were their biggest chart toppers. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like, don't bite the hand that feeds. Right, right, right. Well, I, yeah, I, that's, and I don't have much else to say. Um, There's not much else to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? The music speaks for itself. It so does. Um, and that should be the final word. But uh, listeners, assuming you've hung with us for this long, thank you. Thank you for indulging. This was kind of, this, I'm not going to say this was a dare, um, but it was certainly <laughs> like, it's like, can we actually do an episode on the Bee Gees? Would anybody care about that? But, uh, I'll, as a matter of fact, I'll dare our audience right now. I dare you to not go listen to the Bee Gees as soon as you're done with this, because you know you're all gonna. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, that's that's the point. These are catchy damn songs. Yes, they are. So, um, but if yeah, if you've been listening, uh, <laughs> please leave us some feedback uh, in the comments section at the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Uh, let us know. I mean, do you have a particular favorite BG song? Do you have another story or an experience about you know Saturday Night Fever or uh, one of these songs? Something that we that didn't make our list because they had they've had plenty and we could have included other songs. Yeah, we'd love to hear um, your comments and stories. Share. Yeah, absolutely. Neil, I'm, uh, thank you very much for uh, having this conversation with me. I'm glad that, uh, I, I, from what it looks like, is our schedules will be a little bit more amenable to us recording. Uh, so hopefully we can get back in the swing and do a lot more of these episodes together. Yes, uh, yes, definitely. That. Yeah, you can't leave me out on an island, man. Not an island in the stream. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, as always, thank you for listening to the show and, uh, you know, keep on dancing. <laughs> you should be dancing. What you doing there, Stop, slow down. Okay. All right. Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com as well as on Facebook and Twitter. And if you like this show, please go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for Fire and Water Records. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast out to a wider and wider audience. 
All music, clips, and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, 